I've been trying to figure out, uh, sometimes the last thing that you write is the introduction. And uh, I've been trying to figure out how to preface this sermon because it's going to be kind of a weird sermon. Um, and I think it, it's, it's Matt's fault, really. It's because a few weeks ago he asked me what I had been studying because he knows I'm back at school. I'm taking one class a semester or so, just kind of picking away at eventually getting a doctorate in philosophy. Um, and so he asked me what I was studying, which is always a bad idea. And uh, right away he said, I, start, I got that look that if you're from a college town, you get used to because you ask somebody in engineering, so what are you studying? And they're like, because <gasps> they're thinking how to translate this into layman's terms, you know, and, and that's kind of where I was. It was like the influence of Plotinus on the thought of Augustine. <laughs> uh, but I, then I thought, you know what? Um, actually, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in Augustine. And actually, it'd be really interesting to talk more about it. And then I got thinking more, and I thought, you know, Augustine has made a huge impact on my life personally. And so I think actually where this sermon has ended up, it was going to be on Augustine, now it's ending up more, a lot more on me. Uh, and so it's going to feel a little bit like a testimony, not a testimony of how I got saved, but how I ended up going on missions. Um, the intellectual journey from the age 19 up to about 29, that culminated in December... 2012, saying, I'm going to go on missions and uh, coming out here to Quebec to learn French. Um, so what are all the things intellectually that fell into place to, to bring me to that point? And what I found as I thought back over it is that Augustine is this guy that I keep bumping into without realizing it at first and then eventually realizing, hey, this is, this is Augustine I keep bumping into um, that keeps knocking me in this certain direction and, and way of thinking. So um, this is going to be a bit of a brainy sermon, but it's not going to be out of reach at all. It's, it's just, um, it's going to be different because we're not going to be just looking at a passage of scripture, but more uh, some things that I learned from Augustine. So we pick up the story in um, my 10th year of high school, and I had been going to a private Christian school and really enjoyed it. It was called Covenant Christian School, met in the basement of the church, very actually similar to the situation we have here. And I was very blessed to be there from grade 7 up to grade 10 uh, and really protected for those. Those are really difficult years in my teen, in anybody's life. Uh, but I felt called as a missionary to go to my local high school, secular high school, uh, and reach people for the gospel. And I struggled with this for a while, and I, I knew I had to do it. So I went, told my parents for grade 11 and 12, and in Ontario at the time we had grade 13. So for three years, I was a missionary on campus. And you know, made a lot of mistakes, uh, made a, a lot of, some friends, some enemies, tried my best to, to share the gospel. And one thing that became exceedingly clear very quickly was that I had no clue what I was doing. And um, you can't just, one thing I did just because I wanted to be overt about it is I got these cargo pants. Does anybody have, you know, big pockets here? Do you have pockets yeah. there? It looks like you should have pockets there. Yeah. But I had bigger pockets than that, and I had a Bible just a little bit smaller than this. And it just fit in the pocket. And so I was walking down the halls, and, and whenever I had a minute, I just took out my great big Bible and started reading wherever I was. And so everybody knew right away, you know, I was a Christian. And, and every once in a while, people would be like, hey, give me a Bible verse. You know, I'd give them a Bible verse. And uh, I was kind of a nerd anyway, so it didn't really matter to add something in there. Um, but once I got to be good enough friends and started actually understanding how they think, and then trying to bridge that gap from how I think to how they think, I realized this is a really big gap between us. Like, how do I jump over there and get to where, how you're thinking to try and, and span that gap? 
And the guy that really helped me span that gap was a guy named C.S. Lewis. I don't know if anybody's familiar. But I, I stumbled across mere Christianity, and it was just like lights came on. And all of a sudden I realized, this is how you speak to culture. This is how you, you work to understand how people think in, in the, the modern way of thinking. And then you build a bridge to get, get over there, and you call them back across the bridge to understand what the gospel is. And that's, although I didn't know it because C.S. Lewis is very smart um, in how he presents it. He just says, older scholars have said, older scholars have said. He doesn't actually claim his sources. He also very rarely quotes his scripture in this book. It was originally a radio address, so he didn't want to have it bogged down with a bibliography. Uh, but I, did, I had no idea he was quoting from people like Thomas Aquinas and, and Augustine and a whole bunch of other people. Um, but one of the major concepts that C.S. Lewis helped me to understand, let me point over, um, the big the really big question in apologetics is what about evil? So God is good. Why is there cancer? Why is there famine? Why are there bad things in the world? And what um, Augustine brought into the church, because he really wrestled with this as a young man before he became Christian, what he brought in was to say, look, God is good. God creates, but he creates us with free will. Because we have free will, an inevitable consequence of creating free will creatures is they might go wrong. They might do evil. And so evil is kind of like this shadow. It doesn't exist. It doesn't have an essence in itself. It's the negation of good. It's the privation of good. Um, so when you really dig down into that, that actually answers a lot of questions. And uh, the apologetics class that I taught last year, uh, yeah, last year, last semester, which was also last year. Thank you. Um, this figure prominently in one of the classes. And it comes from Augustine. I actually just learned that this past semester, uh, this past week or two as I was writing a paper on Augustine. Um, but this is one of the many ways that Augustine has brought huge richness into uh, the evangelical church. Um, so you can advance, go on to the blank slide. So the next thing, uh, so did my high school uh, and I said I need more education and so I went to a Bible school uh, and I knew what I, I wanted to do what C.S. Lewis was doing, reaching culture intellectually for Christ. Went to Bible school, didn't have a single course on culture, didn't have a single course on apologetics or on philosophy or even on psychology. Um, some of those courses they've added since, but it was very much just Bible, which was great. I grew in my understanding of the Bible. And then I went to seminary, and again, I had no courses on culture, apologetics, philosophy, or psychology. Nothing. It was just theology. Um, and towards the end of that time, um, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, all that to say, I wish I had gone to a school that was more apologetically focused, but I didn't actually know the name of what he was doing. It's called Apologetics, Reaching Culture for Christ. Now, if anybody's going to school, look for a school that does apologetics. Um, so, as normally happens, I went to seminary, and, um, well, I'll put it this way. In Bible college, I was so impressed by my, my teachers because they had read so many books. When I got to seminary, I was so impressed by my teachers because they had written so many books. Can you imagine sitting under somebody that has actually written a book and got it published? Um, and I was just, you know, starry-eyed and amazed to be sitting under these teachers. And I really, just for the first couple of years, really soaked up everything they said, really absorbed everything. And there was one book especially that really had an impact on me called Beyond Foundationalism, which talked about how... Uh, the foundational way of thinking as in this is one truth and then we build another truth on top of that, another kind of the basic linear way of thinking. This is outdated and it leads to 
basically wars because you have your truth, I have my truth. We're both certain about that, so we're going to have a fight about it. And so they're saying we need to get beyond foundationalism. And they didn't ever explain what it was we were supposed to do other than foundationalism, but they were very clear that foundationalism was wrong. And uh, I read this book and I wrestled with it, and there were some other books for this class. Um, and uh, I really went through this difficult time of, of soul searching and came out with, all right, well, when somebody is born, what do they have? They, they're confronted with other people and with the world. And in that confrontation, they learn. And so we have these relationships. So it's kind of philosophical right now. Um, and through these relationships, we learn and we develop our worldview, right? And so my conclusion was basically all we have is relationships, relationships to other people, relationships to the world. And so the relationship is what is real. The, the in interaction is what is real. Um, and this is interesting in its own way. Basically what this was, although I wasn't philosophically sophisticated enough at the time to explain it, was a, a form of postmodernism or relativism. That basically you have your truth, I have my truth, and there is no absolute truth. There's just relationships of truth, and we're just kind of in this spider web of ideas, and there's no up and there's no down. There's just relationships to one another. Now, this was really satisfying for me for a time, and for uh, in 2007, 2008, I forget what age I was at that time, uh, 1983 minus, I don't know, somebody else can figure it out. Um, I, I became what we called at the time emergent, and I became very critical of the church, and I was very interested in postmodern theories and stuff like this, because if you're, if you're a relativist, your main enemy is anybody that's not. Uh, and so it's interesting that I went away from foundationalism because I didn't like the idea of conflict, and yet becoming a relativist, what do you do? You, you go attack anybody that's not a relativist. Um, this was interesting for me for a while until it, it sort of waned pretty quickly. Uh, it's fun to say, well, you can't say that, you can't say that. It's a negative thing. But positively, what could I say? What could I build my life on? And we just had Corbin, um, and we're trying to figure out well, how to do family, how to do life, how to train this little brain that was born into our family and, and form this young life. Uh, and, and it just seemed like there were a lot of good questions, but not a, good, a lot of good answers. And in that summer, the summer of 2008, uh, I wrote a paper on Augustine, and I said, I was driving truck at the time, and there's this great online source called LibriVox, LibriVox where um, people read books that are old, that are out of copyright, uh, and so you, they just turn them into audiobook format, and it's free. And so I, quote-unquote, read The City of God, uh, and um, Confessions, as well as a bunch of other books of Augustine's. I uh, pretty much just spent the whole summer as I was driving truck, as I was throwing garbage into the back of the truck. I had earmuffs on. I learned later that uh, people around town just called me muffs because um, <laughs> I always had these earmuffs on with a, a little iPod shuffle on them. And um, through the course of all that, I was just kind of soaking up Augustine and just kind of bathing in his mind and his worldview. And eventually I came to realize this whole post-modernity thing, A, it doesn't make sense, and B, this is not a very positive place to be. And eventually, one day I wrote in my journal, post-modernity is not a way to live, it's a way to die. Post-modernity is not a way to live, it's a way to die. And the, way, the reason I said that is because what is life? If you look at cellular life or biological life or societal life or family life, 
It's organization. If you don't have organization and structure, you don't have life. And all the things that we have developed in the modern society, it's because there is truth and there, there's some sort of organization. And if we don't have that, what do postmoderns talk about all the time? It's deconstructionism. Language doesn't make sense anymore. The study of history doesn't make sense anymore. Ethics certainly doesn't make sense anymore. All these things that have made our society great don't make sense anymore without, um, if in a postmodern context. Uh, can you advance? I kind of forget what my next slide is. Yeah, so if we just have your truth and my truth, there's no way to have a dialogue other than just saying, well, this is what I believe and that's what you believe. Okay, that's fine. But when we have a conflict that is more that we can't just walk away from. How do we actually resolve that? And the only way to resolve it, if there is no absolute truth, is might makes right. If you stop to think about that long enough, you realize if there is no absolute truth, then might makes right. Which is why feminism and LGBT and any other ism that comes with a lot of might, hey, we're going to get angry about this, we're going to get social angst behind this, that's what's running society, because they have might on their side of one form or another, or else money. Just plain lots of money. You know, these are the sorts of things that, that really run our society. Because there is no absolute truth, might makes right. Whatever might, whatever strength we're talking about. Whereas what built our society is the idea that there is absolute truth up there. And so our relative truths, I'm not saying that I have absolute truth in my back pocket. Okay? That's, you need to understand that. I don't, I'm not saying that I know what is true. But I'm saying it, it makes sense to say ideas can be more or less true. That's the big idea that, I, that I'm trying to say, is that ideas can be more or less true. If you abandon that, that ideas can't be more or less true, that all ideas are equally true, then we're just in this, you know, chicken noodle, noodle soup of ideas, and all the noodles are floating around, but there's no, there's no relationship. Um, so all of that just kind of, I absorbed it kind of, um, what, what's the, uh, I can't think of the word. I was going to say a nice word, but I forget it. Uh, I just kind of absorbed it from Augustine. It wasn't like this intellectual conversion, but it just kind of like my brain kind of became reformed in reading and slogging through all these many, many pages of osmosis. Yeah, I just kind of absorbed it by osmosis. Thank you. Um, and eventually uh, had a break with um, my emergent friends and my postmodern friends and said, you know what, we need to figure out some way to pursue truth as Christians. Um, and that set me on a path um, of pursuing a, a more, you know, old-fashioned form of Christianity um, and a more straightforward form of Christianity. And then I got stuck on, okay, but if, if we believe in a literal hell and if we believe in the gospel as it is, I mean, what do we do with all these other religions and all these other people that sincerely believe um, that their way is also true and that their way is also good? When I was about 27, um, can we really say, I just, I got stuck with the audacity and the arrogance of saying that other people's ideas are wrong, and how can we impose our view on other people? Uh, and then I read Augustine again, um, which is always a good thing to do, um, and I didn't get as far this time, but I didn't need to, this is the wrong book. Because, let me read the introduction to Confessions, Augustine's Confessions. You are great, Lord, and highly to be praised. 
Great is your power, and your wisdom is immeasurable. Man, a little piece of your creation, desires to praise you. A human bearing, a human being bearing his mortality with him, carrying with him the witness of his sin and the witness that you resist the proud. Nevertheless, to praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. Now, this is the relevant part here. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Let me read that again. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you. We have pleasure in praising God because you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until we rest in you. And as I, you know, and as he goes through the whole the whole book, his whole, uh, the story of his life, he goes over and over and over this theme of how, yes, I had success, yes, I was doing education, yes, I was getting more and more known as a teacher, and yet there was a restlessness until I learned to rest in God. And that started this process. It wasn't the only part, but it was an important part in this process of realizing that God is the source of all of us. God created us. We belong to God. We were created to worship God. God is the one for whom we ache. He's the source of all good things, it says in James 1.17. And it is idolatry to turn from the good things that God has made to, or to turn from God to worship the things that he has made, as it says in Romans 1. So to the extent to which other religions are idolatry, worshiping nature instead of worshiping God, that doesn't get any points with God. Idolatry, if you've read the Bible, it doesn't get any points with God. We need to worship God, not the things he's made. Also, good works in religion are useless to God. So when other religions are good works, our religion, are, are trying to jump through hoops for God or impress God, that doesn't impress God because it, Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our good works are as filthy rags, and our iniquity, like the wind, blows us away. Also, Satan is a deceiver. He is actively trying to steal, kill, and destroy, it says in John 10, 10. And he does so, at times, through false religion, which is a form of deception and is a way of destroying and killing people. In 1 Timothy 4, 1, it says that other, that other religions can be doctrines of demons. Of course, we know that people have a conscience in their hearts and they're trying their best to serve God so it's not to say that other religions have nothing good in them because they're made by people that are made in God's image there's always going to be redeeming qualities and yet these are manifestations of Satan trying to pull people away from God to steal kill and destroy ultimately to defraud them of unity with Christ because ultimately Jesus is God reaching down to us religion is us trying to reach up to God uh, and Jesus is God reaching down to us, offering us salvation that we couldn't, we can't do on our own. We can't build a tower up to God. It is the only way to God. And it's what we have been seeking all along. And ultimately, if you need any more uh, proof, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Um, and so what I was struggling with is what, what right do I have to impose my religion on somebody else? Well, God made everybody. He has all the rights, and he gave all those rights to Jesus, and Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Of course, not with force. Of course, in a winsome way. Um, we don't want to repeat some of the dark chapters of, of our history as Christians, but 
um, ultimately, sharing our faith is what people are looking for. No matter what they're doing, they're looking for God. If they're enjoying the nature that he's made, the source of that is really God. That's what they're, they're designed to, to glory in. If they're pursuing another religion, what they're really seeking, if they have a good heart, is God. And even if they're not interested in religion, there's a restlessness within that can only be satisfied in God. And so um, that's why in 2012 we packed up and headed off um, in missions. And um, a lot of it is due to this guy, Augustine, who's uh, died in uh, before the year 400, I believe. Um, no, sorry. Who died in 438, really long time ago. Um, but wrote books that uh, are still tremendously important for the church and have been tremendously important for me personally. Um, so I think I'm going to end it there. Um, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Augustine. And uh, I know that he's with you now. And uh, not all his doctrines were or ideas were good, but a lot of them were super helpful. And um, I just pray that you would... Uh, well, I'll give him a slap on the back and say, good job. And uh, thank you for people like him that uh, write good stuff. And uh, I just pray that you bless us today. Help our minds, Lord. Um, our, we need to guard our hearts because they're uh, the fountain of all, all of our lives. Um, they are the wellspring of our life. And um, a lot of that is our, is our minds as well. We need to guard how we think about what we think. And we need to figure out truth what is truth and I pray Lord that you would help us to know what truth is um, and what error is because you speak truth and Satan speaks error and lies and I just pray that you would bless us as we go from here in Jesus name Amen <laughs>